Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone, and welcome along to the show. This is Stephen Moe, and I'm glad you could join me as we're going to be speaking with Esther Whitehead about the topic of neurodiversity. Now, I didn't know a lot about this topic, so I was really intrigued to talk about this subject because one of the things I love about Seeds is that I end up learning a lot as I interview my guests. I know you're going to enjoy our wide-ranging conversation, and if you do, there's two things I'd ask. The first one is check out some of the more than 200 other episodes in the back catalog, and also consider if there's a friend that you might share it with because they'll probably enjoy it as well. And there's a lot of information at theseeds.nz. And if you're listening to this in a podcasting app, why not hit subscribe? That way you'll get a little notice when new episodes come out. My aim with Seeds is to build up a database of inspiring people doing some pretty cool stuff with their lives. And I hope you as the listeners are every week surprised at how different the person is to the week before. Now let's get into this interview with Esther. All right, so it's a real pleasure to welcome Esther Whitehead to the podcast. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Pleased to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you on the show. And I'm really curious about the term neurodiversity. Um, It's not something that I know a huge amount about. And I know it's something that you've been focused on and studying and talking with a lot of people about. Um, But before we get into that and and talking about what the term means and and how it applies today, um, what I'd like to do in Seeds is go back in time. So we've got a time travel machine over here. I'd love to learn a bit about your history your background, and then that will inform why it is you do what you do today. So just thinking back to your childhood, let's, let's go right back. So age, say, four or five years old, um, where were you living and, and what was life like for you? Okay, so, well, I'm from the UK and uh, I moved to New Zealand um, in 2000. So I grew up in a village um, that was relatively rural um, back in the UK. And I had parents who, when I reflect on it now, were probably quite progressive in their thinking, Mm -hmm. um, cared deeply about the environment and um, have spent much of my career working in that space. And I cared deeply about social justice um, without necessarily knowing it, even as a child. Um, So I kind of followed a pathway into studying ecology and working in that space. And then when I came to New Zealand, I fell back on um, my teaching quals and uh, started to work in the education sector. Right. So just thinking back to your parents, what do you think had caused them to be bent in that way? Was it was it their parents in turn or 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 not sure? Um, Some of it is definitely speculative. I I guess I'm not sure. It'd be a combination of things. But um, you know, why I'm here today talking about neurodiversity is, is, is an important link here because um, I suspect, though I'm not diagnosed, that I am on the autism spectrum. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've labelled my, my own father um, a few years ago. <laughs> and so the reason that I think that's important is because people that recognise themselves as neurodiverse often recognise themselves as thinkers um, you know, diverse thinkers or people who think differently. And so perhaps there was an element of that in my own upbringing with the way that my father saw the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. And you mentioned growing up in a, like a rural a village. Um, is, that some, is that a place where your family had been from for a long time? Or 
or not? I'm, I'm always no, curious. No, it wasn't actually. So it's um, in, on this, uh, in Staffordshire, on the Shropshire border. So um, it's where England and Wales meet. Okay. Um, but no, neither of my parents were from that district. It, they, they moved there for, for work prospects. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a great place to grow up. Um, yeah, what I don't know if it necessarily formed my views on, on much in life, but perhaps so. Yeah, what made it a great place to grow up? Um, well, it was really safe. Um, it was very outdoorsy. Mm -hmm. And because I, I guess, you know, I, I still identify with being English um, in some ways, although I'm Kiwi citizen, um, the village element was something that I'm still quite attached to, actually, as a notion. Um, so very much a community um, feel to it connected people everyone you know you know all your neighbors um so that aspect of it was very attractive so was it a, a small enough place where like going to school it was a cohort of people where you knew everyone from childhood and you know you knew the yeah. uncles and yeah i lived there until i was 10 so my primary years were in this quite small village you know it had a, a petrol station a butcher um and a, a local store and a village hall and not much else um yeah, yeah so <laughs> gives yeah. you a picture of it yeah no that's really helpful and then coming through a little bit in terms of your high school years was there an area that you enjoyed more than others within school um so when i was at high school i was bored terribly bored by school mm -hmm. um it appeared to me that me mediocrity was the order of the day um in the in the schooling that I attended, it was kind of like, it was just a, a you know, general state school. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I wasn't necessarily the best student. I achieved well without having to try too hard. Um, so I was one of those typical students that I could prove my capability. And once I proved it, I didn't really care anymore about my achievement. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> So that, that meant for me that my grades varied um, significantly mm -hmm. according to how interested I was in it. Um, mm -hmm. However, I achieved and went on to then go to university and study. Um, so I was always drawn to the sciences. Um, the sciences and um, I guess philosophy and sociology as well and the arts. So quite, quite broad, but I ended up taking um, my they're called A-levels there, so the equivalent of NCA3. Um, I ended up taking the science, um, sociology and art, which was okay. quite an interesting mix, and then went into ecology. So I describe myself as a systems thinker. Um, without knowing that term as a, as a child, I always thought in ecosystems. So that's kind of been really interesting to me in terms of where it's taken me in my own thinking and directing where I spend energy and how I contribute to my community and to my workplaces as well. Right. So what do you mean by systems? Like if you're talking about systems thinking and things, yeah. Can you give us a bit more depth into what you're talking about? Sure. So, well, maybe an easier way to think about it is um, just big picture thinking. So when I look at an issue, I don't see it as, just cause and effect, I see it as an interrelation of all of the components that, um, you know, 
that are involved in that aspect. So I can't look at one social problem and not see how it's interconnected to everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, that makes um, solving problems very complex because I have to see, I have to start with the big picture and then kind of hone in on the detail, whereas some other people would start more at the detail of the specific priority they're working with and right. focus on that. So I almost describe it as my visual way of thinking is almost like a constellation of stars where I can kind of map all of these different ideas. Um, and yeah, I guess it makes me somewhat unusual. I don't know. Um, but that's how, how I think really. And when did you sort of first realize that this was coming out as a way of, of thinking you were quite young or no, not at all. So I would also describe myself as a fast processor. So I get to solutions very quickly. Mm -hmm. I can contribute in a group meeting to kind of map everything out, mind map everything out, see all of the interrelating issues and then kind of come up with ideas. And that's a great contributor in within a group. Mm -hmm. Um, but school didn't necessarily offer me those opportunities of creative thinking, of original thinking. Right. Um, so I, I didn't really notice that about myself and still I, until I started to work with people that think differently. And mm-hmm. then I realized that the reason I have a radar for people who think differently is because, of course, I'm one of them. Mm-hmm. So um, we see this quite often, obviously, in any sector of work um, or life where people who bring some form of lived experience can have a greater understanding and start from a place of empathy as well. Hmm. It's really interesting. I think this is probably going to come up as a theme later on as we talk more about school itself, you know, and and the fact that there are sort of rigid structures and, and there's criteria and, and yet in some ways that ignores the the actual experience the real life experience for for many people who maybe wouldn't learn in that way absolutely and of course people like sir ken robinson has talked a great deal about exactly that yeah well let's let's pick that up as a thread that we come back to because that that really interests me i've got young children so it's always interesting to think about you know they're off to school and and um what are they learning or not learning you know how are their because it's such a, those early years are so critical, aren't they? Like, is creativity being enhanced? Are they thinking in new ways? Or is it more about your spelling and you got this wrong? You know, it's mm. quite, quite interesting. Yeah, so we often talk about that as, um, I'm saying it kind of crudely, but higher order thinking skills versus basic skills. Um, so your basic skills is obviously your ability to learn or wrote learn or learn in any form provided um, the skills of using abstract code like language in mm. written form and maths, which, you know, both, both of those are actually code. So what I find interesting is that we never refer to it as that. And if we did, we might have a bit more awareness of why it's challenging for some people to learn. Right. So when we think about language, verbal language, it's innate. It's an innate skill for us to learn. And it's very, very few people on a bell curve that wouldn't pick up um, verbal language, oral language, um, just naturally and innately. However, what we see is quite high percentages of learners that don't pick up. Um, it is a spectrum. 
but who don't pick up just naturally reading and writing. And, and we wouldn't expect them to because it's a learnt skill of obviously mapping uh, verbal language to written code. And I know that you know that already, but it's, it's not until we kind of say it explicitly that we think about, ah, so our fluency in this skill, we just simply do not question the fact that we have honed our skills and mastered them so incredibly well that it's now automated to us. And so for people who have maybe dyslexia or dysgraphia in particular, dysgraphia is um, where you really see challenges in writing. Mm -hmm. um, for those children, they just simply do not innately or easily map code. And so even with support, they will continue to find it difficult. So I went on a bit of a tangent there, but we, you know, we go off to school and we think about higher order thinking skills and that's really about creativity and, and children are creative and curious until they learn not to be. Right. Yeah, no, I, I love this sort of conversation because I think it resonates with me and with anybody who's listening because we all know children and we see their creative drawings, you know, and, and look at this pink elephant and it's flying and it's got wings and all the, you know, all the creativity is bursting out. And then sometimes you do wonder about the school schooling system and, and it, you know, here's a box and we need to fit within it. I think we're going to come back to this theme through the podcast. Um, one of the people I interviewed, actually episode number one was Michelle Sharp, um, who was the CEO at Kilmarnock Enterprises. And she yep. talked about her growing up with dyslexia and, and, the, and the challenges that that had laid. Although um, she then went on to say she felt like it gave her um, more opportunities later on because she had a more diverse way of thinking and, and approaching problems and the willingness to try things, um, which I'm sure we're gonna come back to. Yeah, one of the things as well that I'm thinking of, it's interesting you're talking about the higher order and sort of the more in a way, the mundane, like two plus two is four, <laughs> that sort of level. It yeah. kind of echoes another principle, which I've been noticing, perhaps as I'm getting older, but you know, the first half of your life, you're often focused on career and CV qualities. You know, I have this degree, I got this many marks, I can use this program, I can do whatever it is. And then the second half of life, often it's more about the eulogy virtues, the things about that person was kind, they looked after others, they cared for others. And it's an interesting, just as an echo of what you're saying, that sometimes we focus so much on those, you know, tangible, look, look at the CV skills. And then actually what's really important at the end of somebody's life it's much more about, you know, nobody stands up and says, well, look at their transcript. Uh, it's much more about this person was kind, helped others, was a mentor, you know, those sorts of skills. It's kind of an echo of what you're saying that sometimes we get too focused on the detail and we forget what really matters. Yeah, and I think um, really it's a, it's a well-known reflection of the narrowness of our current education system in the Western world. So I'm not attacking New Zealand education system there, just a more of an observation of how we've narrowed what we believe to be success. So if we think prior to, for example, the printing press, or if we think about 
First Nations or Aboriginal cultures. Um, you know, most people were illiterate um, prior to the printing press and oral skills were highly valued. Um, if we think about First Nations and Indigenous people, um, there was no mapping of oral language in many of those First Nation cultures. Um, and so why we see it as a sign of intellect is really just a sign of our times. And this is potentially and speculatively, you know, I, I raised the question, what do we see as a, a kind of successful criteria for success at any given time? And right now, it, we're still following the Victorian era of the three R's, are the success at school. And we've grown out of that Victorian era massively. You know, we have changed our education system massively, yet we still focus quite narrowly on what success looks like. And in doing so, we miss what you just described, which is often the talents, strengths and skills of our young people to the detriment of, you know, their lives and what, how they can contribute to both their families and to society. And so the worst case scenario is when we have graduates leaving who actually don't know what their strengths are because the, the narrow focus has really set them up for failure and not allowed us to establish, well, what are they successful in? And so philosophically, it's, it's an interesting question to raise. And you could argue that actually, maybe we're on the cusp of something new again, you know, maybe now um, with the digital age, we, there's no better time to be dyslexic. Um, we are actually able to access information. I mean, you, you don't actually need school. You only need school to jump through the hoops that you've just said, you know, to, to, yeah. to have all of the qualifications and the proof of learning. Um, but in terms of just learning, we could, we, we could argue that we could learn outside of school, right? So the digital age is an interesting time for us. And when you delve into what it's like to be dyslexic or other forms of neurodiversity right now, there's a huge discussion around, um, you know, digital accessibility and assistive technologies. And, and we're in a, this intergenerational power play at the moment of people my age, 45 years old, kind of saying, but you don't know how to spell that word and you need to be able to spell it. <laughs> and young people just simply saying, well, I can just speak into my device and why, why would I waste my time? Yeah. So the, the old rules and the old conceptions and the exams that the previous generation had gone through, you know, maybe that isn't the way of the future. That's really good. Well, let's come back to that as, as we keep talking. Um, back to your story then, because we're, we are here in New Zealand. You said you came over in about 2000. How did that come about? Uh, well, that came about because I followed my man, um, mm -hmm. who I, I first met when I was 11. Actually, we went to high school together. Um, and then we got together as a couple in 2000 and we moved to New Zealand. Um, he had previously come here and absolutely loved it. And I'd been living elsewhere in the world. And uh, he is very into the outdoors and particularly mountain biking. So Queenstown was a, an area that, you know, he, he just uh, fell in love with. And I guess I fell in love with him. So then I ended up here. <laughs> Right. So you moved right to Queenstown when you first came? Yeah. And we've been here ever since. So it's an interesting place to be because um, obviously so you've, it's... You've seen a lot of changes then in the last 20 years. 
yes, we've seen lots of changes um, for good and for bad. So, you know, it, it's got a very negative narrative currently happening around um, Queenstown, but um, equally it has created more community cohesion. It's created more future thin thinking. It's created lots of aspects within our community that actually excite me. When I came here 20 years ago, um, a person like myself who, I wouldn't say I look for problems because that makes me sound really negative, but I like to think about the future and I guess thought leadership. And um, when I first came to New Zealand, I was shocked actually because of my ecological background. I was shocked at you know the discussion around being clean and green when the only thing really at play was a low a very low population that hadn't yet ruined its um right environment yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and and so i think what's really interesting here that i've witnessed and I, I can't talk for other places but is the collective wisdom and um i, I guess that is just a sign of our times um but it's it's great just to just see a less myopic kind of small provincial, you know, community thought process and uh, a more outward looking community. So yeah, good. That's really good. And in terms of ecology, is that something that you were working in when you got to New Zealand or? Uh, no, I had been working in it um, when I graduated university um, in uh, freshwater ecology in research. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, it was incredibly hard to find good paid, well-paid jobs. Um, and then when I came to New Zealand, I started to understand that conservation here was something quite different. So it effectively meant killing, killing pests. And um, um, so that's when I went into the education sector. But um, I've interestingly, my own journey with the environment and my passion for sustainability, um, came to the fore after having my child. Um, so he's now nine mm -hmm. and I've heard many other people say this as well. So, um, you know, the thing that keeps me awake at night is really the future of our planet. And, um, so some years ago I got involved in kind of community leadership in that area. And I founded an organization called sustainable Queenstown and, uh, set up, um, for example, food rescue and, um, a number of other initiatives that have kind of been based around impact. So strong alignment, social enterprise and um, community led engagement. Well, that's really cool. Um, mm. I'm really curious just to come back to that systems thinking element, because I, that that's, I think that's really helpful to think with that lens on the world. And I'm just wondering if you can observe, I, you can take this any direction you want to, but just thinking about New Zealand, you know, it's it's a it's a small place, um, relatively speaking. You know, it's it's not like America with a couple hundred million people or or whatever. Um, what have you observed about systems thinking or systems change in a New Zealand context? Oh, that's a big question, isn't it? Um... Well, I think also the disclaimer is, is that I'm, you know, I'm not based out of Wellington and um, I have done a bit of policy analysis um, within both sectors of environment and education. Um, but I, if I was to say it in its most crude form, I think it would be that we, we have taken the opposite approach, piecemeal ad hoc. Um, 
for most for most things. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe we're on the cusp of change now. Um, yeah, that, that would be my experience. And that's from a local governance level right through to yeah, national policy level as well. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. And so just turning our attention then to like bring us up to speed with some of the work that you're involved in today and sure. what, it is that, what it is that you're doing and keeping you busy. Sure. Um, so currently, um, and for the last 10 years, I've managed the Dyslexia Foundation of New Zealand. And uh, we are first and foremost a lobby group. So our key role is advocacy of amplifying um, the voices of the cohort we represent. So essentially, we started out looking just at the education sector. Mm-hmm. And we've also done a lot of work in the justice sector as well. We're now moving into workplace and we've got a forum that we're hosting, if COVID doesn't prevent it, um, in Wellington on October the 2nd, which is about uh, neurodiversity in the workplace. So when I talk about neurodiversity, it can be quite confusing for people. I manage the Dyslexia Foundation and my role there, as I say, is mainly advocacy. It's also listening to people's stories and helping them to navigate the school system or the workplace or mm-hmm. justice um, or social services. So um, on a day-to-day basis, I am involved in training. Um, so training schools, training workplaces. Um, I do most of that online. And I'm also involved in helping people um, go through mediation processes as well which interestingly, there are more and more. And that's really a sign of the times with the fact that, you know, we're more socially aware of what learning differences are. And also our graduates are now leaving school or tertiary and they're entering workplaces and they are A, disclosing and B, self-advocating. So they know what they need in order to succeed. Right. So we're, we've got an interesting situation in New Zealand because um, we don't actually frame most neurodiversity as a disability, which means that it can sometimes be a struggle to protect the rights or to make the invisible more visible. Right. So talk us through this term neurodiversity. Um, sure. I, think, I think we've all come across the word diversity and I know there's lots of discussions I probably if I haven't already I probably will email you a link to a report I did about creatives and and diversity you know thinking different different people around the boardroom table um, not just a certain stereotypical person sitting there so diversity is a term we're familiar with I think but just take us through the basics of what what are you meaning by neurodiversity and how does that work out in some example? Okay, so the way that um, I frame neurodiversity is really the next frontier of diversity. Okay. What I mean by that is, you know, I think in New Zealand currently we are aware of diversity. I don't think we've quite reached um, inclusion. Mm -hmm. Um, We understand what inclusion looks like, but we, we aren't quite yet there yet. So diversity, um, for example, gender, ethnicity, age, socioeconomic, sexuality, we've come a long way. And I think certain movements um, 
such as the Pride movement, has been a really good example of how to celebrate difference and bring people along for the ride so that people not only understand it but engage with it and celebrate it with them in the mainstream. Um, when it comes to neurodiversity, there are different ways of framing it, but back in the 90s, it kind of stemmed out of the understanding of autism and pitching autism as a neurological difference rather than a disability. Right. So that's where the term kind of first gained traction. And it is exactly, I mean, my view of it with my background in ecology is to really set the premise that neurodiversity is as essential to human life as biodiversity is. Mm -hmm. And that's really about saying, um, rather than looking at it through a medical lens of disability and difference, we actually look at it as a natural variation of a natural neurobiological variation. Mm -hmm. And so there's strong evidence coming out of this movement that that's the case what complicates it is the level of the spectrum, for example, with autism and dyslexia and other spectrum disorders. So it is hard to argue sometimes that it's just natural variation when it meets a point where it's clearly such a huge barrier in somebody's life. Yeah. Does that help break it down a little? Yeah, it does. It does help. And I think it's, it's just some, important to understand the terms that we're using you know yeah. and, and what we're actually what, what we're getting at I mean it makes perfect sense I'm I can look out the the window right here and not everybody looks the same <laughs> there's, exactly. there's huge diversity and and you see it everywhere you go so it makes sense that there there would be diversity in terms of um, neurodiversity as well yeah and, and just to clarify as well, it's a disclaimer, I'm not a neuroscientist, but the science from MRI scans in particular shows us how brains process information differently. So for example, a dyslexic brain will process information in a different area to a non-dyslexic brain. Mm -hmm. And we know that's happening and we know that there's inefficiencies in that approach because it's the processing of code for dyslexics that is particularly challenging. So they're actually processing it, processing it in a more visual part of the brain right. than a non-dyslexic. So when we start to think about it, rather than, um, rather than the symptoms of it, like low-level literacy, when we think about it as a processing difference, we then start to see the associated talents and strengths, which mm -hmm. we completely miss out on when we don't take that approach. Mm -hmm. So framing it that way helps us kind of think about, well, how do we value that diversity like we do with any other diversity and enable that to be a contribution so i, th I think another nice analogy is to say um there's no such things as there's no such thing as different races we are one human race mm. you know we have different ethnic variations mm. but we talk quite a lot about race well actually we're one species and that variation is just a natural part of the diversity of the human species. So it frames it in quite a different manner. And that can be challenging for a lot of people to think about. Yeah, no, I, I, I can see that. So what would be then the natural outcome of that if you were advocating for this or what the implication would be? Uh, and particularly maybe when if you were talking with the schools or people who 
for better or worse, are within the paradigm of thinking which we've had for decades, although not hundreds and hundreds of years, as you pointed out, you know, it's relatively recent, but, you know, speaking to that sort of group of people, how would you frame what the consequences of this would be? Um, I think it's really about um, breaking some assumptions as our starting point for practice. Mm-hmm. Um, when we when we make assumptions that everybody learns in a certain way, we know from the evidence that um, many people will fail. Mm-hmm. I'm oversimplifying it, obviously, but um, as soon as we start from the premise of let's assume that people in front of me may not understand, and we work towards accommodating the way that they prefer to learn, then we open up the access access to the curriculum, if you like. So maybe an easier way to think about it is um, if we have really strong tools which are coming into place um, probably next year from the Ministry of Education, like screening tools, we can actually find out very, very early on in a child's schooling whether they have some red flags around certain areas of code and of phonological awareness, which is the precursor to emergent reading. Um, And that will just allow us to understand how they might choose to learn best. So there's this kind of, um, there's this idea that we have to learn in a certain way and we have to focus on accuracy as the attainment. Whereas if actually we think about, well, what's the point of schooling? It's to access learning. Then we can accommodate through, for example, technology, speech to text, or simply having a scribe or mind mapping or looking at other ways to prove that you have learnt about the content rather than that idea of, you know, regurgitating written material. Mm. And, and that is slowly happening. So the implications are that if we start to, um, I guess, take, take more from the learner themselves in terms of understanding, witnessing their preferences and leaning towards them it doesn't necessarily create more work for the teacher it just enables um, differentiation by task in the classroom it's really interesting because when i think back to my own education and even at like university your set assignments you know frankly lots of it is rote learning particularly because i did a law degree i had to memorize pieces and what this case stands for and then how to explain it but also just the you know there's a word limit you have 1500 words and if you go above you're going to get deductions and if you're under that that's not good either and um, it's quite a strict way of doing it whereas i guess if you took what you're saying as far as you could you you, you could actually recognize that a 1500 word essay is pointless you know, what are we really trying to do here? We're trying to get people to understand knowledge and show that they can research. And if we, if we wanted to, I don't know if you'd want to go this far, but rather than having a 1500 word essay, maybe the material is presented in a, in a different way that recognizes that the written, you know, 1,500 words is one way to present the material, but there's many better ways to present the material as well. Absolutely. And, and what it does again is it narrows learning. For example, if I just talk personally, and I suspect it's the same of you, if you understand the art of essay writing, you mm-hmm. can pass anything. 
mm-hmm. right? And the point of the exercise um, decades ago and, and, and still continues is to learn that material through regurgitation. But as we know, if we think about our own startups or social enterprises or, um, you know, innovation, it, it doesn't start from regurgitating material, you know. So it's, it's, again, coming back to that higher order thinking skills. Like we know if we think about monocultures in ecology, we know they don't work. And it's essentially the same um, in our institutions. So we've identified what we believe to be, we've ring-fenced a monoculture of success. And I think that there lies our issues in society because without the diversity of thought and the diversity of problem solving, how can we solve the huge political um, issues we've got, the climate issues we've got? You know, we need different thinkers to come to the table and think about it in a different way. We know that some of our leaders can read and write and present that information easily. But what we actually want is leadership that, um, you know, can bring everybody along and create the solutions. So I, I propose to people that we do that through recognizing and valuing diverse thinking. So let's just talk practically. You know, I, I'm working in a, in a company. That yeah. person there is working in a company. What are, what are some ways that we could take on board these messages or uh, apart from it being a topic that we talk about, like on this podcast, you know, what are some practical things that people could do to, to help this understanding? Um, well, I think a lot of workplaces are already doing it. And interestingly, they're often the workplaces that attract different thinkers. So it might be um, IT and tech in particular, although that, that is um, a bit of a sweeping statement and an assumption that's always made. Um, these organizations recognize that um, allowing flexibility of how the person wants to work actually will benefit the, the company as well. And that can be anything. So it could be you know, working from home, it could be creating a workspace that um, has less kind of sensory um, input from big lighting. It's about how we communicate. Communication is everything, right? whether we've got, I mean, there's diversity regardless of neurodiversity, there's diversity in thinking, there's opinions, there's um, you know, different, different political um, views, et cetera, et cetera. So all of these cultural issues that already exist in our workplace um, really benefit from good communication. And what we know about, for example, a classroom that has stronger communication is that it is more visual, it is more simplified, it is digestible. And so workplaces that want to achieve better retention of staff and better relationships and better productivity start with the premise of a safe emotional environment. You know, there's safety in our environment. And what does that look like? So it is doing things like we're doing now. It is having those conversations, not just the posters on the wall. Mm. Um, And it is mapping out what some of those metrics are. And it is talking about how we communicate um, and listening to opportunities where people who have ideas can bring those to the fore. So one of the aspects of neurodiversity that's constantly talked about is that, um, you know, it's this, this idea that people um, are very good at problem solving, like 3D thinkers, um, big picture thinkers, very good at problem solving, and that could be a real asset to a workplace. 
the pragmatics that you refer to in terms of if I've got an administrative job and I'm highly dyslexic, well, that's bad luck for me. Um, I've disclosed my dyslexia, let's say, and then maybe I use assistive technology like speech to text um, to, in order to accommodate my difficulties and my barriers. Yeah, no, that's good. It's just, it's good to ask these practical questions of what does it mean <laughs> beyond the high level discussion. Um, so, um, and other countries are so far ahead um, with regards to this. Yeah. So the, it comes back to a question I asked before about New Zealand and sort of changes, but it, from a systems level change, um, what, what do you hope for in the future? Like it's 20 years from now, you've been here 20 years, you've got, it's, it's now 2040. What sort of a place are we, are you hoping it will be? Wow. I mean, that question is just, <laughs> it's so challenging because honestly, when I think about globally where we're at in 20 years, I can barely fathom what that looks like. Um, so, well, yeah, I mean, I, I suspect that some of our systems will completely fall over because of the huge disruptions from climate changes and public health changes, etc. Mm -hmm. um, what does that mean? Well, interestingly, if we take your district as an example, in a, in a smaller, as a smaller example, you know, you came out of the earthquake and what happens? Well, community grassroots campaigns and activities is kind of the first step of regeneration. And that's the bit that excites me because I think that we're seeing that not just globally, but I think we're seeing it in New Zealand. We're seeing communities understanding that what happens locally has an impact, not just for them, but beyond their district. Um, so I don't think I've answered the question and that might be because I want to hide my pessimism. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to ask the questions and there's, there's never an easy answer for any of these things. So <laughs> it's good just to have the discussion. Was there anything else that you wanted to touch on or, um, share with people because um, we've covered well, it, quite a lot but I want to open it up in case yeah it, sure well I guess when it comes to practical support if people are listening to this and they're thinking about neurodiversity and dyslexia in particular I mentioned dyslexia because that's the area that I work in with the dyslexia foundation mm -hmm. um, please know that you can go to the dyslexia foundation um, website or Facebook page and start to find ways to navigate some of the challenges. Um, some of your previous guests have talked about um, what it means to have dyslexia and for children it can be really challenging but one thing that we can control if you like because we can't control their whole school day is how we talk about dyslexia at home and I think this podcast hopefully will provide some insights to people where reframing difference is really valuable and self-advocacy is a huge part of that so when i think about what does success look like for let's say a 16 year old person that's got quite severe dyslexia well it looks like a 16 year old who can say hey by the way i'm dyslexic it's not that big a deal to me right. but i can't really access the learning like this please could you blah 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 show me the information in this way, I can do it that way. That means that that person has control over their learning. 
it means they hold no shame. Shame is the absolute killer. And there's been lots of studies done on shame um, for kids with learning difficulties. And that's because they historically have been set up for constant failure and they turn their thinking from I'm bad at this to I am bad. Mm. Um, and so we want to deconstruct shame by talking about difference and we want to validate difference and we want to enable teachers to understand the best way to teach and all of that flows into our workplaces as well so um, yeah please know that you can come to the dyslexia foundation and that there is um, access to things like professional development and support as well so yeah. yeah, that's really good. And I think part of the reason I do these podcasts is to normalize these conversations so that it becomes just a part of the conversation around the dinner table, you know, that it's yeah, not just a, a strange thing or a, like, what is, what is this? You know, it's just a normal thing. And I think that's really important what you said it, as well, thinking uh, as a parent, you know, if, if you have a child, you know, recognizing that there, there is support there and that it's okay to ask for help, that it's okay to reach out and to find out more about these things rather than kind of shutting it off and saying, well, why aren't you learning the way I learned, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And recognizing that that, as you said earlier, is not necessarily the best way to learn. It's just the one that we've focused on right now. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the fascinating thing. So Jeff Bone, I interviewed now a couple of years ago and he was describing dyslexia and we, we did the interview and he just dropped one line at one point saying that, that this had been an issue during his schooling years. And then he came back and we did a 20 minutes on the benefits of his life through his having realized that dyslexia had shaped him and all of the, the he called it a superpower. You know, yeah. that this was something that helped him in a way that he does things today that he would never have thought of doing if he hadn't had it. And I guess it's that mindset shift of not actually viewing it as a negative thing, viewing it as a, wow, this is an amazing opportunity. But if it's framed in the way of, oh, you have that thing, you know, it's, it's not a empowering way of talking, is it? No, absolutely. And, and that's what parents can take control over. That's the, that's one area where they can make a huge difference, you know, and thinking differently um, right now in our current climate, I think is gonna be a huge attribute. Uh, and we know a lot about the soft skills that we are told that we need for the future um, of employment. Mm. And um, I suspect that some of our neurodiverse learners are gonna do very well in that space because they are key thinkers, not just regurgitators. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly, I think you're right. And, and like you say, there's diverse ecological problems facing us ranging from plastic in the oceans to ozone and all of these things that we need to overcome and it's likely that we're going to need new ways of approaching the problems rather than old ways of thinking so yeah it's to be encouraged and we have to also remember that in the general population um, across the UK and America the statistic is about 15 to 20 percent of the general population um, have dyslexia Whereas um, the, on the positive statistics, as entrepreneurs, we see 35%. Negative statistics, mental health and prisons, we see really high percentages. And what that tells us is that when we create barriers um, and we don't validate this cohort of people, they don't have 
the ability to thrive essentially mm. however when we can enable them to thrive they can do incredibly well and i think the statistics show us that very very clearly yeah that's really good well what we'll do is in the show notes we'll put links to things so feel free to send that and if people are interested they can go through and click and find out more um, yeah. in particular i'm thinking of resources you know for parents with children or or you know they've got a cousin or a nephew or whatever um, yeah. I think it'd, it'd be great to put some material out there. Um, and yeah, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been great to chat with you and hear about your own story and, you know, your studies and then that systems level thinking. I, I really enjoyed thinking in that way. And in a way, this is a problem that, that we need um, new ways of thinking about neurodiversity itself. So Absolutely. It's, yeah. it's been really yeah, enriching to talk with you and find out more about this subject. So thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. That's awesome. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that interview with Esther. I know for me, there were several things that stood out. In particular, I really enjoyed learning more about neurodiversity. If you did as well, then there might be somebody who you know who would enjoy having this podcast shared with them. Don't forget there's a lot more episodes in the back catalog, so be sure to check some of those out as well. And there's more information at theseeds.nz. Until next time!